I think that there is a universal truth um, that, that if somebody uses your full name, it only means one of two things. You know what I'm talking about? You've either done something really good or something really bad. I mean, nobody uses your full name all willy-nilly like, right? You're not just throwing it around. You don't use it neutrally. You don't just walk into a room and say, hi, I'm Woods Bradshaw Lisenby. It's good to see you. No, hey, I'm Woods. You know, that's my name. That's that's the easy way to do it. When you introduce yourself, you, you probably just say your first name, maybe your first and last name. When you call somebody on the phone, you don't say, oh, hello, this is Woods Bradshaw Lisenby. How you doing? We don't have a neutral way of doing this because... When somebody uses your full name, they've got some weight behind it. I remember whenever I walked across the stage at Huntington College for my graduation, the provost said, Woods Bradshaw Lisenby, no cum laude's. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't say that part. They only, they only said it if you got them, right? But, but it was something really good for which they used my entire name. And, and I remember also, though, when my mom came home one day, and she found that her entire collection of ceramic horses had participated in my version of the Kentucky Derby down the stairs. She said, Woods Bradshaw Lisenby. And it was something really bad. The the church in Corinth doesn't have a middle and last name. The the letter Paul is writing to these people um, is to the entire group, not one person. But if this church did have a full name, this would have been the case where Paul was using it, and it would not have been for something really good. Did you catch how this verse begins and the, the weight and the angst and the strength behind what Paul said? He said, in the following things, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. He's talking to the church about their gatherings. It would be as if I showed up here and said, you all are terrible. What you do is not right. And every time you come to this place, you'd have been better off not coming because what you're doing causes more harm than good. I have no praise for you. And the reason he has no praise for them, the reason why he is so upset is because he says, whenever you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Paul is mad because this church continues to divide itself against one another. He's not mad just because they don't have their their theology perfectly right. He's not mad because they haven't been perfect out in the world to everybody else. He does talk about those things, but he doesn't yell about them about that. He says, I'm mad because when you come together, You do more harm because you are generating more problems than you solve because of your lack of unity. You all want to to believe that your group within the church has God's approval. And you want to believe that the other group does not have God's approval. That, that, That you're right and they're wrong and you're all part of one church. When you come together, he says, you're not eating the Lord's Supper if you were eating the Lord's Supper, you'd all be eating together. But instead, what they were doing when they gathered together, they had like the cool kids table and the everybody else table. Some of you are eating before everybody else arrives. You know, if, if you were wealthy and you didn't have to work, you could show up to the gathering early enough to where you got the, the choice of food and you got as much as you wanted. And if you had to work and you had to work late and you came to the gathering late, there's nothing for you because everybody who was there early ate it all. 
It'd be like if, if you showed up to a party and you get there and all the best pieces of steak were gone. Oh, if you, you might not, I don't go to the parties with all the steak, but maybe pizza. You go to a party and all the pieces of pizza are gone, right? And all that's left is the one with pineapples on it. And so my wife's gonna eat them all. She's gonna be thrilled, but everybody else is gonna be like, what are you doing eating pineapple on pizza? That's, for the, that's the leftovers. One person gets nothing, he says, while another gets drunk. Y'all don't care about each other. All you care about is yourselves. And he lays it on thick. And he says, do you despise the church of God? Do you dis- Listen, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not on this matter. Paul is mad. When you read 1 Corinthians, it's not just all lovey-dovey, New Testament, God is grace, and all the things are good. Paul is so frustrated with this early church. And when we refer to Jesus flipping tables of righteous anger, we think like that's the number one example of, of like where you're allowed to get mad in the Bible. But if that's example number one, this is 1A. It doesn't get much angrier than, shall I praise you? Not in this matter. <laughs> you do more harm than good. I think it's safe to say, though, if we're honest and we, and we reflect on, on what's got Paul frustrated, he's justified. His anger is righteous. I mean, he has spent years now starting churches. He travels place to place, going and, and telling people about Jesus. And then he, he leaves the people behind in this new church plan, and he communicates with them from afar. And it seems like this pattern happens over and over. He gets his letters where people have just forgotten what he's told them. It's like he shows up, he tells them about Jesus, everybody's excited. Their hearts are set on fire by the Holy Spirit. Things are great, they all love each other, they're all hanging out, they're all best friends. And then Paul leaves, and, and they're like, we're going to change the world. And then a couple weeks pass by, and the world's not changed. And you, you fall back into some of your old habits. And things that used to be normal become normal again. And the divisions that are in the world become the divisions within the church, and the entitled and the society become the entitled and the congregation. And, and that corporate worship where everybody is supposed to be welcome at the table, all of a sudden, only those who feel worthy become welcomed. There's infighting, and there's jockeying for positions. If you're early, you get the good stuff. If you're late, you get left out, and that, that's just the way it was. And that's what Paul's writing to. And as we hear Paul's frustration, at least we can say, though, you know, those frustrations are all in the past. At least we can read the scripture and say there's no longer infighting. There's no longer jockeying for influence or position. I'm sure Paul would praise us for our, our ways of being unified in all things and not that we do more harm than good, right? You know, Jesus had a story about this. Jesus, you know, it's pretty amazing as, as we remember. Jesus knows a lot about human behavior, it turns out. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells a group of people that there was once a man who owned a vineyard and early in the morning, he went out and he found some day laborers for, to come work in his vineyard. And he said, I'll pay you one denarius if you come and work for me. And they agreed to it. About nine o'clock, the landowner went back out and saw some more men standing around. And he said, why are you standing here? And they said, nobody's hired us. And he said, I'll hire you and I'll pay you what is right. Would come work for me. 
At noon, he did the same thing. He went out, and there's still some more men who had not been given jobs. He said, come work in my vineyards. And then once again, at five o'clock in the afternoon, he went out, and there's still some more day labor who said, nobody hired us. And so he said, come work for me, and I'll pay you what is right. And they went back, and they worked for him the rest of the day. So then when evening came, he told his foreman to call the men in and pay them their earnings. And so the first that were hired went last, and those who were last came first, and and he said to them, here's your payment of one denarius to those who had been hired at five o'clock. And then he paid those who went along, and the people who were hired first were very excited because they thought, wow, if they came in late and they only, they they got paid a a full day's wage, I wonder what we're going to get paid. And And then those who were hired first came forward, and the landowner paid them one denarius. And they were mad, and they were frustrated, and they said, this isn't right, this isn't fair. But here's how Jesus tells it. But the landowner said to them, I'm not being unfair. Didn't I tell you I would pay you one denarius for your work? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I give you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Obviously, my previous comments were a little bit made in jest. We unfortunately still have a number of things that do divide us. We still let beliefs or our own personal preferences cause us to separate ourselves from one another, cause us to want to sit at a certain table and not at another table. I think that we like to assume we know what we deserve and we like to assume that we know what other people deserve. We think that if we're good and we do what we ought to do, we deserve to get more than those that are less good and those that don't do what they ought to do. We think if we are righteous, God should look favorably upon us, and those who are unrighteous, God should not look favorably upon them. If we're first to the party, we should get the most pieces of pizza. And if others are late, if they're not doing what they ought to do, well, that's on them. They reap what they deserve. But Paul reminds us, he's reminding this this early church in Corinth that the economy of God works very differently than the one we live in. What is fair and what is righteous might look different in the kingdom. He told the church that on the night in which Jesus died, he, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say that this bread is for those that deserve it. He didn't say, some of you get a lot of bread and some of you get a little bread. He didn't say, I'm breaking my body for those of you who who do what is right every day and I'm not doing it for those of you who don't. He said, this is given to you. And after supper was over, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. He didn't say that the new covenant is only for those who pray every day. We should aspire to pray every day. Don't get me wrong. But he didn't say if you don't, you don't get to be part of the new covenant. He didn't say you have to be a Christian for a certain amount of years before you get to participate in this new covenant or before you get to receive this cup. Paul says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread 
and drink of the cup. Examine themselves. You see, friends, I think there are times where we believe it is our job to examine others. We try to to think of somebody else that's not worthy. If, If somebody else is not deserving. Have you ever listened to a sermon and thought to yourself, man, I know who exactly who needs to hear this. Maybe you're sitting here today thinking that very thing. Have you, ever, have you ever been sitting there in church and said, ooh, I wish so-and-so was here because then they'd realize the error of their ways. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send them the podcast of this sermon with a caption, I'm going to just leave this here, right? I'm not, I'm not just, I'm guilty of it. I've been there sitting there in a church and the preacher says something about the person that, you know, that, that, that I'm upset with. and like, oh man, I just wish that they would be convicted by the Lord. And then I just come up and receive my communion, feeling all self-righteous and just like, mm, thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you for not, you know, like the, the, the two men that were praying at the temple and, and one's like, thank you for making me not like him. I've been that, I've been there and I, I bet you have been too. But Paul says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. The same judgment that we cast on others will be brought on us. Our desire to damn our neighbor is just a trap that locks us into the same fate. To not not feel the love and grace that maybe they could offer us when we refuse to offer it to them. But if we are more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. When we come to the table, we examine ourselves. You know, on this Aldersgate Sunday, I'm reminded that John and Charles Wesley lived in and around a time where there's a lot of reformations happening in Europe, a lot of revolutions happening. There, there were uprisings on the continent where these working and poor folks saw the lack of justice and experienced the oppression, and so they fought back. Just across the English Channel at this time in France, the country was devolving after a revolution into what we now know as the Reign of Terror. And in 1815, there's a French historian looked back on this time and looked at England and wondered why they were able to, to avoid this fate. How did they negotiate the industrial revolution and the incredible social and economic changes without following into the same kind of violence that France had? And do you know what this historian discovered? It was the Methodists. The Methodist movement was the single most powerful force restraining the violence and the terror that consumed France. That was never the goal of Methodism in the beginning, by the way. But it came about through one of the simplest and the inescapable feature of the Methodist movement. The meetings, the gatherings, is now a universally accepted thesis that these gatherings between the richest and the poorest in England brought people together in such a way that they found love and unity between each other. During the earliest Methodist movements, the rich and the poor came together for worship, for fellowship, and they shared meals together. Most importantly, they shared the Lord's Supper. 
at the table of the Lord, they were not separated by social or economic status. They, they came to know one another. And, and it wasn't so much that the, the poor got to know the rich and they decided not to send them to the guillotine, right? We're, we're going to hold ourselves back. It was more that the rich were humbled by knowing the poor and they began to listen to them. And the early Methodists who had influence became the most ardent champions of their sisters and brothers who had none. In fact, you know what's even more incredible is that John Wesley never started one of these meetings in a rich part of London. Every Methodist meeting that happened was in one of the poor areas of the city. He didn't say who has the largest house that can host the most people. He didn't say who has the nicest china so that we can be sure that every one of these gatherings is decadent. He, he started them in poor parts of town and they were so full of God's power that the rich came to join in. That, my friends, is the legacy that we inherit. That is our tradition that we can celebrate and give thanks for. That is why we're putting such an emphasis on starting new supper clubs. And it's also why we still think it is so important for us to break the bread and share the cup together in worship. Because at the table of the Lord, we're not bankers and painters and teachers and preachers and landscapers and lawyers. At God's table, we are daughters and we are sons of the divine. We are the children of God. The unity that can come from the Lord's table and the unity that can come when we gather in each other's homes has the power to change the world. That's what they were hoping for when, when Paul started this church. They wanted to change the world. I think that's what we all want too. We all want to belong to something. We all want to belong to something bigger than ourselves. We all want to do something that says what I'm doing makes a difference. That can't happen when we are divided amongst ourselves. That can't happen when we're too busy fighting each other that we're not willing to face the world and show the glory of God. The, the most important thing that we can do is gather together, to gather together and experience the supernatural unity that comes from Christian fellowship, to gather together in each other's homes or at a restaurant and at worship. I think the thing that we all long for is to have that place where we belong. And the good news is everyone has a place to belong. Everyone in this room and everyone in this world has a place to belong because we believe that that table right there is open to everybody. This table is open to everybody and I hope that our groups are open to everyone. I hope that your homes your friendships, your lives will be open to others so they can experience the joy and the blessing of Jesus Christ.